0: Hey, welcome, welcome. Good to see all of you here today at South Fellowship. I hope you all had a great holiday season. Uh, Amelia's filling in for Aaron and uh, along with the rest of her team. I think we ought to give them a hand for leading us in worship. Uh, Pastor Larry asked me a couple of weeks ago if I'd be willing to uh, step in this morning because I think he uh, is off planning our next series. I think we're going to start next week on the Gospel of Mark. So uh, as I was thinking about it and praying about it, I thought uh, what I'd like to share is uh, something out of uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're not exactly sure who wrote this book. Uh, many people, myself included on this one, think it was Solomon, but there's quite a bit of debate over that because the author only identifies himself as the preacher, uh, the son of David living in Jerusalem. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for preacher is Koeleph which simply means a person who stands in front of an assembly and addresses them. But when the Old Testament was eventually translated into Greek, that word was translated ecclesiastic, and that's where we get the word ecclesiastes from. We're going to look at chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 12. If you brought a Bible, you could just turn literally to the middle of your Bible and maybe go a few pages to the left, and you'll find yourself in ecclesiastes close to chapter 9. I'm going to uh, use the scripture on the screen as well if you want to follow along that way, but I'm going to pray first, and then uh, we're going to see what the Lord would uh, teach us from this text this morning. Let's bow together. Father, thanks for everything that you provide for us day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. Lord, as you know, uh, the way we... uh, count time we're entering into a new year and a new decade so we pray for your wisdom your grace your guidance lord uh, i thank you for every person that's here today lord wherever we're at i just pray that you might minister to us in a special way and now lord give us ears to hear your word uh, minds that are attentive and hearts Hearts that are receptive to you and your spirit, and we ask all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, given that it's a new year and a new decade, there are lots and lots of people and pundits who are trying to predict what the future is going to bring, and it doesn't matter whether it's in the realm of politics or sports or the Oscars, or the Broncos. Lots of people are making predictions about what's going to happen in the new year of 2020 and beyond. But it's always dangerous to try to predict the future because the future almost never, ever turns out the way people think. Um, To illustrate the point, over the past 50 years, various individuals and groups have ventured forth with their predictions, their visions of the future, and I want to share just a few of them with you. Uh, Here's one individual who said this, almost all of the many predictions now being made about 1996 hinge on the Internet's continuing exponential growth, but I predict the Internet will soon go supernova and in 1996 catastrophe collapse. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Here's another one about the future of the Apple Corporation. I mean, there's a number of quotes here. I'm just going to read a couple of them to you. Uh, This was made in 1995 by the magazine The Economist. Uh, Apple seems to have two options. The first is to break itself up, selling the hardware side. The second is to sell the company outright. Uh, Michael Dell, uh, CEO of Dell Computer, said, what would I do? I'd shut Apple down and give the money back to the shareholders. Wow, was he ever wrong. We don't even talk about Dell computers now, and Apple dominates everything. But here's my favorite, 1962, The Beatles. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. Now, as these examples show, and trust me, they were just a few of the many that I could find. Trying to predict the future is dicey at best. Now, I don't think too many of us are going to spend a lot of time sitting around trying to predict what's going to happen in 2020 or beyond, Uh, but I think most of us, if we could, we'd like to get a glimpse into this coming week or this coming month, this coming year to see what's going to happen so that we could be more in control of life. And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes is so relevant. The preacher, Koaleth, King Solomon, tells us that trying to look into the future is nothing but a fool's errand. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wants to warn us off from spending any time doing that. And instead, he points us towards the life That God wants you and I to live right now in the coming days, weeks, and months. Uh, To see what he's talking about here, let's start at chapter 9, verse 1. Then we'll look at verse 11, and then we'll scroll down to verse 12. Here's what he says. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Uh, I've seen something else under the sun, verse 11. The race is not always to the swift. Uh, The battle's not always to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Solomon argues here in verse 1, it's impossible for you and me to know the future. We have absolutely no idea of what life might bring our way. As he says there in verse 1, we don't know this week whether we're going to meet somebody who might become our new best friend or we'll meet someone who uh, wishes us ill. And then as we look there in verse 11, we uh, see that he's addressing, in fact, he's critiquing what we might call the success formula for life or the cause and effect formula of life. He says, well, normally the fastest runner wins the race. That's not always true. While the biggest and best army usually wins the war, that's not always what happens. One of you can only think of the American experience in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s to know that's true. And while we think, and we like to predict that wealth go to the smartest and the best educated, that's not always what happens. A good friend of mine told me one time about a dinner he was having with a financial advisor, and his dinner finished, and they were going to get ready to serve the dessert. He decided that he'd pick the brain of this financial advisor. He said, you've been doing financial advising now for 30 years. Tell me what you've learned over the last 30 years. And the investment advisor said, well, what I've learned is this that some of the most foolish and stupid people in our city are among the wealthiest, and some of the most shrewd and the wisest have gone bankrupt. Koaleth Solomon, uh, looks here and he says, well, that's, that's, not the way it, that's not the way it should be, but sometimes, sometimes that's the way it happens. And then he goes on in verse 12 to reinforce this. He says, moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken a snare, uh, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. As he says here, sometimes, sometimes unexpected misfortune comes our way. It might be that visit that we take to the doctor and They say, we want you to come back in for more tests because we're afraid, we're afraid you have a tumor. It might be sometime you're driving down here on C470 and all of a sudden somebody slams on their brakes and you rear end them going 40 or 50 miles an hour. Sometimes it's that phone call, and you've had these and so do I, that phone call that comes in the middle of the night and we don't like those at all because it tells us, "Oh no." someone has passed away. Friends, we simply do not know what's going to happen in 2020 and beyond, whether good or bad. We're simply too limited to have that kind of knowledge. Uh, but then the preacher, Koaleth, I think Solomon, goes on, and he says, there is, though, one thing, one thing we can know about the future, and that's... That we all face the same end. Look what he says here in verses 2 and 3. He says all, that's everybody, you and me, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked. The good and the bad. The clean and the unclean. Those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Uh, This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. And Solomon comes to us here and he says, Well, you, you really can't know the future except I want you to pause and I want you to reflect on the one reality you knew know is coming and that is the reality of death. In a broken and fallen and mixed up world, the one thing we know for sure is that every single one of us in the room is now a little bit closer to death than we were 30 minutes ago when we walked through the doors of this auditorium. And as he does all the time in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher verbally processes the weird, the strange. He uses the word evil. The way death works. As he says here, it comes to the righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the nasty, the nice. It comes to believers and unbelievers, the risk takers, and those who are averse to risk. In America today, because of all of our technology and our affluence, a lot of times we do a lot of things to avoid the reality of death, but. Earlier generations of Christians were probably a lot more in touch with this than we are. Uh, one of the most prominent phrases among Christians in the medieval world was momento more. It's a Latin phrase. Remember, you will die. Now, that's a depressing thought. I think we just need to get that on the table. But here's the thing about Coelef, the preacher. He doesn't leave us there. In verses 4 and 5, now, he's going to turn the tables a little bit. He's going to transition and give us some hope. Uh, Look what he says here. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Uh, For the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. He argues this, he says, you and I have a huge advantage over anybody who's dead right now. We're alive today, and we can know that we're going to at some point pass from this life. And then to prove the point for his cultural audience, he makes this interesting comparison between a live dog and a dead lion. Uh, and that might not make much difference to us, so let me explain something here. In contemporary America, we elevate dogs to human-like status. If you're like Melanie and me, the dog is a big part of the family. On average, Americans spend $1,300 a year per dog per family. Now, that's a lot of money. $1,300 a year. Obviously, we think dogs are worth it, and that's why we spend money on them. But as you may know, in the ancient Near East, dogs were viewed as horrible, dirty creatures who scavenged for garbage. They were never, ever welcomed in the home. The idea of owning one as a pet, that would have been incomprehensible. On the other hand, lions were these symbols of pride, and majesty, and power, and prowess, and strength. But as the preacher notes here, dead lion no longer exhibits any of those qualities. That's why even a live dog is better than a dead lion. See, this is what I love about Ecclesiastes. This is what I love about the preacher of this book. He tells us, yeah, death is inevitable. But life offers the hope that we can learn to live it really, really well. And the foundation of a life that's lived well is the idea of the sovereignty of God. Up there in verse 1, Solomon had said, we're in God's hands. Uh, That's a metaphorical way of saying that God is in complete control of everything. He's the king who rules and reigns over everything and everyone in the universe. And his kingdom came in a very personal way in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me share some passages from the New Testament just to try to drive this point home. Uh, When Jesus came inaugurating his ministry in Judea and Galilee. This was the nature of his ministry. This was his main message. This was his big idea. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he meant by that is God's rule and reign is now possible for you in your life. God can rule and reign in your life, and eventually he will rule over all of creation. About 20 years after Jesus died on that cross from our sins and then rose from the dead, the Apostle Paul, writing to those very, very first Christians in that small town in Colossae in Asia Minor, said this. And note what he says. For God, God, the sovereign God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then late in the first century, when he was exiled all alone out there on that island called Patmos in the Mediterranean for standing up for Jesus, the Apostle John encountered the resurrected and glorified Christ. And here's what he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then notice this, listen, 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 this is really, really important. He, that is Jesus, placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Friends, the sovereign king, Jesus, comes to us and he says, I don't want you to worry about the future. Because I'm the king, and if you know me, you're in my kingdom, and I've conquered sin and death and hell. He comes to us and he says, you know, when you were a little tiny kid and you were sitting on mama's lap and she was singing to you, that was me singing to you through her. When you were at church camp and you were first hearing the good news about me, I was right next to you and I was drawing you to myself. You know those dark And sad days and nights when you were all heartbroken and alone, I was right next to you and I was holding you closer than you could know. I'm in control of every single thing that's gonna happen to you for the rest of your life. And when you die, I will take you to be with me forever and ever. Of what happens, we don't have to fear or fret about the future. We don't have to fear or fret the inevitability of death because our king, Jesus, is sovereign and he's in control. Now, I know it's true, as the preacher has told us. We don't know what awaits us. Sometimes that's going to be good. Sometimes things will go awry. Sometimes good times will happen. Sometimes bad things will come. It's also true that someday we will get sick and die. But we don't need to worry or stress or fret about those things because our king, Jesus, Jesus, he loves us and he's placed us in his kingdom. And he's in control. And as the reality of that begins to sink into our heads and our hearts and our minds and our lives, over time, we're going to become people of joy. We're not going to be Sidney Sinek or Debbie Downer or Tommy Tombstone. But we're going to be positive people of prayer and praise. We're going to be people who are going to have a blast while we last. (laughs) Solomon goes on and shows us what that looks like. This is what he's calling us to. Look at verses 7 and 8. Notice the word that he starts with here, go. Because God is sovereign, because the king is in control. Go, notice what he says, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. The preacher from an Old Testament perspective, but inspired by the Spirit, tells you and me this. He he says, listen, listen, listen. He says, you're part of the kingdom of God. You can have a blast while you last. And what this means is it's like a big party where you can eat and drink and have fun. I mean, and the phrase here in verse 8 about being clothed and white and anointing your head with oil. Well, that's, that's a Jewish reference about wearing your best clothes and putting on your very best expensive perfume. It's like going to a wedding where there's this great celebration. I mean, we dress up and we have a good time at weddings because it's a time of feasting and food and fun. And friends, this is really, really important. Notice, he says, for God has already approved what you do. One person translates it this way. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. FYI. This is how Jesus lived as he traveled throughout ancient Israel doing his ministry. In Luke chapter 7 verse 34, Jesus says that all his religiously minded critics accused him of eating and drinking and being a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't seem to mind that too much. He certainly was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he didn't seem to mind going to parties and eating a lot and drinking and having a good time. In Luke 13, verse 39, he talks about when the kingdom of God will finally come. And he says, in its fullest expression, when the kingdom of arrives, many will come from east and west and they'll sit down at this huge feast and they'll dine with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One biblical scholar said that if you read the gospel slowly and carefully, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that Jesus ate his way through his ministry. (laughs) So friends, given Jesus' example and given that the preacher tells us to go, to go, I want to encourage each and every one of you, to leverage the command and go out and eat something you really, really, really like. And I don't care if you think it's bad for you. If you like it, you go and eat it. (laughs) My good and godly wife, Melanie, blesses me every Christmas. She goes to this bakery over in Lakewood. It's called The Taste of Denmark. And she buys me this loaf of apple strudel. Now, what I do is I cut half of it and save it for later in the year, but I have been eating my way through that apple strudel. It's fantastic. I know it's bad for me. I don't care. I was joking with Melanie the other day. I said, yeah, the day's going to come when I'm going to die, and they're going to lay me out on the table, and the nurse will go, what did he die of, doctor? Well, we looked at his bloodstream, and it was filled with apple strudel. Yeah, because I want to have a blast while I last, and part of that for me, it's eating apple Strudel. Friends, Christ is king. He's sovereign. He's in control. Let's have a blast while we last. And that means don't fret, don't fear, but rather go and eat some fun food. He goes on, though. There's more to this life in the kingdom. Look what he says. Enjoy life with your wife. could translate that. Spouse whom you love, all the days of this fleeting life that God has given you under the sun, all your fleeting days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. The preacher says, you know what you should do? You should enjoy your spouse. Marriage is a good thing. God made it. He designed it to be a blessing to us. And so we should take the time and make the effort to love our spouses, nurture our spouses, do everything that's possible to make our marriages healthy and happy. In the 16th century, Martin Luther initiated a revolution called the Protestant Reformation, and part of that was clergy now getting married. And Luther was older when he got married. He was 41, and he married a former nun by the name of Catherine von Bora. He called her Katie. She was quite a bit younger than him. She was only 25, and they had a very long and happy marriage. Let me share just a couple of quotes with you that Luther gave to his students and his parishioners because I think they're very apropos for me and for you. He said, of course the Christian should love his wife. He's supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. Now, here's the other one I like. It is impossible to keep peace between men and women in family life if they do not condone and overlook each other's faults, but watch everything to the smallest point. For who at times does not offend? I offend sometimes, don't I? A lot more than you do. Thank you for overlooking my faults. Yeah, Luther's right. We need to do what the preacher says and love our spouses. Now, here's the reality. While most of us will probably be married at some point of our life, and we need to do what Luther says here and take time to love on our spouses, the broader application of this point, though, out of Ecclesiastes, is that whether we're married or we're single, we invest in and engage in those relationships that we have, whether we're married or we're single. And once again, Jesus is the model here. I mean, Jesus never married. Jesus never had kids. In fact, most of his family didn't believe that he was the Messiah until after the resurrection, and then they couldn't deny it. But as you look at his life in the Gospels, it's clear. He had a number of really close relationships that he clearly enjoyed. He invested himself in. I mean, there were the 12 disciples, and within the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John. It appears he was closest to them. And then there was Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus spent a lot of time at their house. They really, really ministered to him. He loved them deeply. And then you read that passage at the beginning of Luke 8 about those women, Joanna and Susanna and Mary Magdalene. They all were closely following Jesus. They were investing in his ministry. Friends, you don't have to be married to have good friendships and great fellowship and thoroughly enjoy those. What we need to keep in mind is that in the kingdom, friendships and fellowship and relationships are one of God's great gifts to us to help us enjoy life. So let me ask us a couple of questions here, and I'm asking these to me as well as to you. Whether we're single or we're married, What specific relationships are we going to give ourselves to in 2020 and beyond? And given the fact that we all reward what we value, are you going to reward those relationships? Am I going to reward those relationships with time and energy and money? See, the preacher comes to us here in Ecclesiastes 9, and he says, listen, I don't want you to fret about the future. God is sovereign, and he's in control. What you should do, because God is sovereign and Jesus is king, is he says you should have a blast while you last. First of all, that means eating some really good food, and secondly, that means building some really, really good relationships. And he also says, give yourself to the work that God's provided for you. Look what he says, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. See, if we dial back from Ecclesiastes back to the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told there that men and women are made in the image of God. Now, the meaning of what that really is, has been debated for centuries. But I always like to look at it this way. One helpful way to understand what it means that you and I are made in God's image is that when God looks at us, he sees something of himself in us as his special creatures. And one of the things that God did and God continues to do is he works. You see that in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve were working there in the garden and it was all good. Well, what the preacher does is he picks up on that idea here and he refines it a little bit. He says, whatever the Lord's given you to do, do it with to all of your ability while you can because the day is going to come when you're not going to be able to work anymore. And actually, this admonition prefigures what the Apostle Paul wrote to those first Christians in Colossae a thousand years later. Let me read this to you. This is Paul talking to those first believers. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. In the last couple of years, Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers fame has been gaining a lot of attention. Uh, through a documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and then the new movie that just came out starring Tom Hanks as him, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Highly recommend both of these films. They are great. It's interesting, in the documentary about Mr. Rogers' life, at the end, he's giving a college graduation speech, and after he gives the speech, all these graduates came up and stood in line to talk to him. And they caught the comment this one young woman made, she came up to him and she had tears running down her cheeks and she grabbed his hands and she said, I want to thank you so very, very much because when I was a little girl, I used to watch your show and you made me feel loved. You know why? Because he went, to work every day and to the very best of his ability, he said, I'm going to try to connect with all these little kids. Friends, let's remember Jesus is king. He's in control. So let's have a blast while we last, regardless of whether we're teaching kids or writing code or running a company or building buildings, whatever it is, Let's put our hearts into that because that's part of the good life that God has provided for us. Just to drive this home, I want to read from the message translation of the passage we've looked at, verses 7 through 10. Uh, This was translated by Eugene Peterson. I want to read this because it really gets to the heart of what the preacher Solomon is trying to communicate. Listen to the way this is translated. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure. Note that. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it, and heartily, this is your last and only chance at it, for there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you're most certainly headed. Listen, listen, listen. You can't know the future, and neither can I. That's not possible. But Jesus knows everything. He's the king. He's got you and me in his hands. So given that reality, have a blast while you